Welcome to Solana. We are a super fast blockchain project bringing proof of history and in turn 100,000x speeds to the blockchain ecosystem. This podcast is a discussion between our core staff, industry leaders, and top contributors to our open source project. Find out more at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Solana. Now, on to the show. Hey, my name is Andy Bromberg. I'm the co-founder and president of CoinList. Uh, CoinList is a platform where the best digital asset companies manage their token sales, airdrops, hackathons. And, uh, and our big goal is just trying to help the best projects win, help them grow their community, help them with their fundraising processes and, and help them succeed and, and build all this technology that's so important for the space and, and for the world to exist. A little backstory on CoinList. We got started back in 2017. Protocol Labs, who build Filecoin, uh, were going to run the Filecoin token sale and needed some help with the compliance side of things. They looped in AngelList, and AngelList and Protocol Labs ended up collaborating on building this platform to run the Filecoin token sale. That went really well. They raised about $205 million. And in that process, they realized that every single token issuer was going to need that exact same set of services. Everyone who was running a token sale would need things like compliance and transaction processing and managing the documents and investors and the whole flow of logistically running a token sale, which is really complicated. And so at that point, decided to spin CoinList out into a new independent entity. We spun out in the fall of 2017 to do exactly that, to support the top token projects as they fundraise and scale. Since then, we've done a lot more. We've launched our airdrops product, we've launched our hackathons product, and we've just tried to help the best crypto projects grow, fundraise, scale their their communities, and uh, and be successful. And so that's what we're working on right now. And I'm really excited to be here and, and talk a little bit about that and the industry and, and Solana and anything else that comes up. I was at Dropbox when the Filecoin ICO happened. And because Dropbox is the storage service company, Filecoin is really in everyone's mind. And like, is this really possible? Are they actually going to launch a decentralized storage network? So that honestly was the catalyst for me to start Solana. I wasn't, awesome. I wasn't even thinking about the space seriously. I mean, like it was obvious that things were happening. But after that ICO and I saw that there's this huge opportunity for decentralized services right now to compete with centralized ones. That really made me kind of turn on my engineering brain on this, like, okay, what are the actual problems? How can I solve them? Yeah, and I can imagine, right, even being a Dropbox massively successful in building right. a file storage service, there are pain points that a decentralized system could solve at scale for something like Dropbox. Yeah. We're, I'm like super excited about the progress that Filecoin is making too, hoping they will succeed like later this year. I'm not sure when their launch date actually is, though. Yeah, they're targeting the next kind of six months, at least getting out there. And, and I think that'll be, you're right, kind of a milestone moment, I think, for the entire space, because it really was that keystone sale yeah. of that first 2017 cycle. And so they are finally getting ready to launch, and that should cascade into a lot of other people launching. You know, we're, we're certainly seeing other projects go live around the same time, and then projects that were started coming after that will, will cycle in. But I do think we've been in a little bit of a waiting period, right, where the... Yeah. The sales that ran in 2017 are just now getting ready to launch. And so the last you know, 12 or 18 months has been, there hasn't been as much launching token and network wise, and that's going to start very soon, I think. Yeah. You guys have been, I think, kind of at that point between regulation and the crypto space, which is like, I would say there's a lot of folks in the space that are anti-regulation. How do you like balance that? Yeah, it's something, I think, a constant source of tension, but also where we see our biggest advantage, right? That we can bridge being crypto people and being able to help and support crypto projects, but also spending time and money and effort on 
the regulation, legal, and compliance side of things. And that's where we see our biggest advantage, right, is that if you want to operate in the United States or even abroad in different jurisdictions, you've got to follow the law. And you can choose not to. That's a, certainly a path that some people have taken. It may work out for some people. I think for most, it will not. Yeah. And so it, it feels to us that the sane people in the space are going and saying, well, we need to abide by this regulation wherever we happen to be. And our role at CoinList, uh, or at least one of them, is helping with that. So because we've now helped with so many token sales, we've spent so much time, we get economies of scale on working on the legal and compliance and regulatory side because when we learn something or we build something to support that side of things, we can then apply it to dozens and dozens of token sales. And that's what we do. So helping with things like KYC, AML, investor accreditation, all of that stuff is a lot of what we do. It's it's uh, nitty gritty, grind out work. But uh, I think it's important that the people are able to do that. And, and what we would love to be able to do is abstract as much of that away from projects as possible so that the great projects can go and build their networks and not have to worry as much about that side of things. So Coinless does this like nitty gritty, almost the grind of, I need to go verify who this person is and do their accreditation. But your background, I think, uh, you did computer science and mathematics at Stanford. That's right. Started the Bitcoin group at Stanford. Yeah. That's like a very technical, deep tech background. Like, um, what do you see like, like your view from as a technologist, like do you guys see Coinless becoming like a technology company? Yeah, I, we, we really do. And I think broadly our approach is that we believe that the crypto space is going to, in fairly short order, be 10, 100, 1,000 times bigger than it is today. And what we want to do is position ourselves at the nexus of that and help all the best projects. And in some sense, be able to kind of index across the space, right? And, and bet on the space as a whole. Because we feel like we've got really high conviction in this idea that crypto is going to grow. And so we wanted to build a business that would grow with crypto. And that's what we're, we're aiming to do. So absolutely, yeah, I, I was at Stanford studying math and computer science, um, met professor there at the time, Balaji Srinivasan, who was most recently the CTO of Coinbase. And before that, a partner in Dreesen Horowitz, a founder of Earn.com. And he was our professor. And he, back in 2012 or 2013, sat a bunch of us down and basically said, listen, this Bitcoin thing is going to be a big deal. You should pay attention to it, which I am eternally grateful for. And, uh, and we ended up starting the Stanford Bitcoin group. And that was, interestingly, pretty early days, right? Not the earliest, but 2012, 2013, yeah. the space was not as big as it is today. And there was not as much talk about the regulatory side of things. It was just kind of operating this pure technology mindset. And then in 2014, 2015, 2016, we started to see the regulatory questions come in. And in 2017, when these ICOs started to happen in earnest, I think that's where we saw this opportunity was, yeah, okay, lots of people are building great technology. We trust that people can do that. What those people are coming to us and saying is hard is the regulatory side and the legal side and just understanding how to structure these things. Maybe we can start a company that will scale with the space by doing exactly those sorts of things. That's really cool. It, it's such a small space, right? It like it, the Bology was the professor at Stanford that was working, uh, that, that was talking to you guys on the, about Bitcoin. That's an awesome history. And it's amazing too, by the way, when we were starting that group, we spent a lot of time just running around and meeting people in the crypto space and trying to learn and understand what was happening. And almost everyone who was in crypto in 2012 or 2013 still is. Yeah. And so we run into the same people and we're like, hey, I remember meeting you, you know, when I was at Stanford in the Bitcoin group at Coupa Cafe in Palo Alto and talking about Bitcoin. And now here we are six or seven years later and, uh, and they're doing something totally different in the space, which is really exciting. 
You know, like I've been to like you know a few conferences now, and I still meet the exact same people everywhere I go. Always, <laughs> yeah. It's still like the space is still so small. So uh, I don't know if you saw like Jeremy from Augur like recently had a tweet about scalability and like that as being a primary UX challenge right now. Like at least yeah. from his perspective, do you agree? Like, is that really the problem? Yes and no. So I, th- I think that one of the things that we're going to see is that scalability in and of itself is not a UX challenge, right? Scalability should not be exposed to the user. Things should just work for the average user and it shouldn't matter. For the majority of use cases of crypto today, that is speculation and investment. Scalability is actually not a huge issue. People mostly trade on centralized exchanges. Centralized exchanges typically don't even touch the ledger with every transaction. So scalability isn't stopping people from trading in and out. And that's, I think, the majority of use cases today. What's concerning to me from a scalability perspective is that I think a lot of the most promising consumer use cases will be bottlenecked on scalability at their current rates. And so people always cite this example, but the classic CryptoKitties example, right? That this was one of the first really compelling, true, non-investment, non-speculation consumer use cases for crypto. There was evidence of that. People got really excited. CryptoKitties got bid up. There was a ton of activity on the network. And it suffered as a result of the Ethereum network not being able to handle it properly. And so what's what's concerning to me is not scalability itself as a UX challenge, but scalability as being the bottleneck on really promising consumer use cases. And I think that can happen in one of two ways. Either really promising use cases do get developed like CryptoKitties, and then they can't reach their full potential as a result of scalability issues on existing networks. Or people who would otherwise build really compelling consumer use cases look at it and say, I'm just not even going to try because yeah. this is, you know, it's not going to work. There's going to be scalability issues. And so when you look at that, all of a sudden you wonder about these unknowns who out there could build the next great consumer use case in crypto and is not doing it because they're just scared of the scalability issues. So that to me is almost the, the more concerning one is the ones that, that never even make it to the first stage. And so from that perspective, scalability is kind of a second order biggest UX challenge in the space, I I totally agree with. I think it's really important. There are certainly also other ones too. It is not the only one, but but I do think it has the potential to stop a lot of otherwise promising consumer use cases. I agree with you, but that's simply because I'm I'm trying to solve that problem, right? right? (laughs) Well, I think everyone's glad you are, right? That's that's the hopefully that that breaks some of those people out into into the field that makes them willing to try and build these products that need to exist. Do you guys like um like what you guys do primarily deals with identity and identity has been like this really massive kind of, you know, use case that people always talk about in the space. Do you guys see practical applications of using digital identity for something that Coinless does? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a really interesting topic and I think that identity has been, it's been explored a little bit, but not fully. And there's a lot of untrod ground here in terms of what identity really is. One of the things that, that I think about a lot is Identity means many different things. So I'll give you two examples really simply, and there's a whole spectrum in between. One is perfect identity. That is, I am Andy Bromberg, I have a social security number, I have an address, I have a phone number. That is a unique identifier for who I am, is this kind of sum of all of this data and exactly who I am. That type of identity is useful for things like addressing regulatory concerns. So going through a KYC process where someone needs to know who you are truly, uniquely, And so you need to give that information. On the flip side, another end of the spectrum is that when you talk about airdrops or giving away tokens or allowing for participation on a network, 
A lot of people talk about using identity to make sure you avoid civil attacks, where one person pretends to be many and in such a way is able to do something adversarial on the network. In order to do that, you actually don't need perfect identity. You don't need the person's social security number to avoid a civil attack. All you need is sufficient visibility that the people are unique from each other. And so those are two very different use cases for identity that require different sorts of identity, different sorts of data about the person. And there's a whole spectrum in between. So I think the, the first step in thinking about this identity stuff in general is not to think about it in terms of, well, we need a identity solution for crypto. I think what we need to talk about is what are the actual use cases that we need it for? So I would argue that on the totally unique identity side for regulatory concerns, I'm not convinced that there's a really valuable kind of crypto-based identity use case there because at the end of the day, if you have a burden of doing KYC on someone, you still actually need their social security number or their passport or whatever else it is you need. And so showing that someone has a unique identity over there or doing something, putting that on the blockchain somehow might be a little bit valuable, but for the most part, you need to collect all of the personal data anyway, again, for regulatory reasons. So it's not really that helpful to have that. On the flip side, when you look at the other end of the spectrum, that's where I see some of these blockchain-based use cases for identity being really valuable, is how can we actually prove uniqueness of identity? Or how can we show that someone is carrying the same identity and reputation across multiple systems, but not necessarily having information about that person, just having uh, you know a guarantee that they have they have the keys to to this yeah. sort of uh, wallet or or identity, and so that to me is is really interesting and valuable. It is a very hard problem, yeah. you know. I, we've heard so many pitches at, at Coinlist from people that kind of they're talking about the use case for their token or for their project, and they kind of gloss over. It. They're like, well, yeah, and then of course, you know, we'll we'll have an identity system and a reputation system, and we're <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, hold up, right? <laughs> this is not trivial to go and, and build these things, uh, and and no one has really solve those in any sort of complete fashion yet there's bits and pieces here and there so yeah there's a lot of work to do there and i think it, it is valuable at least on one side of the spectrum if not for for more of it you brought up an interesting concept that i haven't even thought of before like if i have a reputation in, in one system can i prove that i have that reputation in another one without actually revealing who i am that's like a really interesting concept yeah i think it, there's a couple related concepts here that I think will end up being powerful drivers in the blockchain space of, of a lot of usage early on. One is exactly that reputation, right? When I have reputation on an existing centralized service, I cannot port it over. My Uber rating does not become my Lyft rating. And you see sometimes hacks around this. So I always think of this example of uh, airline status challenges. So like if you have a certain status with American Airlines, sometimes you can call United and say, I'm going to prove to you that I have status on American, so you give me status too yeah. and try and you know, sell me as a customer. But the way they do that right now is literally asking you to send a screenshot of your account page, yeah. right? So <laughs> this, this does not seem, yeah. it seems like there's something here and it's not being done right. And so that reputation, I think, is really interesting. And then more generally, just this whole idea of compatibility between systems. So where I've seen this discussed the most in, in the blockchain space so far is with games that you could you know, somehow get an item or some sort of attain a level or something in one game, and then you're able to port that over to another game, and those games can actually be cross-compatible, and maybe the sword you picked up in one game can be used in a different game, and, and so you can kind of allow these things to build off each other. Both of those concepts, the reputation and this compatibility, fit under this umbrella of, wow, if we build all of these things on the same systems, 
and you can prove ownership of something, whether that's ownership of reputation, ownership of an item, or ownership of something else, that can, can drive some really interesting network effects between different systems and, uh, and empower the, the consumer, the user, more than they ordinarily would be. Do you see a Raelian side to this? Like, if it becomes easy to prove all these aspects of your life, are people going to request it? Like, at the coffee shop that I have a particular, like, consumer ranking or something like that? Yeah, there's, there's some Black Mirror <laughs> stuff here, right? right? Yeah, that's... So I think there's a world where we go down that path and a world where we don't. And I, you know, whenever topics like this come up, I always, you know, I just kind of default to talking about the internet, right? Where the internet exists... I'm a huge fan of the internet. I would not be where I am today if not for this crazy thing. It can be used in all sorts of incredibly perverse ways. And it sometimes is, and hopefully most of the time isn't. And I just, I hope that by having the right people in the space, which I think is something that the blockchain space has done a really good job of, the technology can be kind of directed in the right direction. But the technology is not opinionated itself, right? The technology yeah. is just a, a medium for allowing some sort of transaction to happen. And it's up to us, the people in the space, to push it in the right direction. So I hope that there's a direction which is, you know, when I go to the coffee shop and I go to pay, if I want to, I can say, listen, I'm, I'm a big spender at, at the coffee shop across the street, <laughs> and so maybe you want to give me a discount, and that's great. But it's up to me to do that. And it's not a situation where I walk up and they say, we're not serving you unless you tell us what your coffee customer ranking is. Right. Because that would be a really, <laughs> I'm not sure that's the world I want to live in. It maybe, you know, it sometimes feels a little bit inevitable that that sort of data sharing is going to happen, but the hope is that market forces would compete the overly aggressive data grabbers out of the marketplace. If there's two coffee shops next to each other and one of them doesn't let me in unless I can prove that I'm a good coffee customer and another one lets me in regardless, I probably pick the, the latter. And so hopefully that, that competes it out of existence. I think the other side that people don't quite understand is, you know, a form on the internet may seem simple, but building one that works that doesn't have a lot of errors it just takes so much time and work that when you're talking about like having people prove attestations of properties and other networks for small business transactions i just don't see that like actually being feasible there's not enough engineers to build all this stuff certainly not for yeah. a very long yeah. time yeah i mean that i do like the concept that has emerged of attestations as the way of doing this that i can you know, cryptographically attest that something is true about me and, and that mental model fits really well with how I think the space will develop, but it does not mean it's trivial. And, you know, you look at, at how long it's taken for merchants to accept different payment methods in the first place, and that's them getting paid. Now trying to imagine them integrating crypto attestations for personality traits or things yeah. that I've done, that seems like a, a long shot yeah. for, for any, you know, reasonable uh, time frame. Do you guys, I guess, like this has been on my mind because we recently just ported the Move VM from the Libra published to yeah. our platform. What do you guys think of Facebook like and Libra in general? I'm net really, really excited about it. And the biggest reason is, is simple. I think they're going to expose a lot of people to the space that otherwise would not have been exposed to blockchain for a very long time. And core to my mental concept of how the blockchain space works is open markets and competition and that projects compete against each other on a level playing field and you know people can move their data from one to another and they can choose the, the product that they want to use and so i i've talked to a lot of people that have concerns about certain aspects of libra they they don't like the way they've done something or something else or something else and that's totally fine i actually think their team is is very open to talking about that and they have not shipped the product yet they have announced it well in advance to try and incorporate suggestions and thoughts but at the end of the day, it's hard to imagine that 
any specific project is perfect for anyone except the team building it, right? So it, you know, there's always going to be things where you're like, that is not precisely the way I want. And it's just a matter of competing on an open market for who is the best to do that service that that project is offering. And so I, I kind of discount some of the, the issues that people have pointed out with Libra because my view is if you don't want to use it, don't use it. And I think they will bring hopefully millions and millions and millions, maybe billions of people to the space well before they otherwise would have been exposed. And that to me is really exciting. And those users will then come into the blockchain crypto space and have freedom of choice as to which projects and assets they want to use and everyone's going to compete against them. The one sense in which it's not a level playing field is that they have distribution channels already, right? And they've got lots of capital and can yeah. hire a huge team and, and do all that. But to me, that's, again, just, just the market at play here. And lots of big companies have launched products before that have failed to smaller competitors. And I certainly think that's a possibility for them. So it's it really is, uh, they've got advantages, they've got disadvantages as a result of being big and established. And uh, it's just a matter of competing against against that. As an engineer, I'm happy that everything's open source and it's Apache 2.0, which means there's really no patent fear, software patent fear from using it. I think fundamentally the, the concern that I have is we're building this decentralized space and because decentralization is hard and like self-custody is hard, it's just slower, right? Like adoption is slower and you see these centralized players, exchanges take a lot of advantage of this and make a lot of money and gain a lot of market share. The amount of volume that's run on a DAX compared to any of the top tier centralized exchanges is like, you know, 1% of it, right? Like, so I'm worried that Facebook, while the technology they're building is trying to achieve this like fully decentralized open BFD style Cosmos network. But I think that because they have this centralized rollout and this distribution channel, that they kind of have a monopoly, right? No one's gonna, at Facebook, gonna let Solana compete at the same level or equal playing field uh, as Libra. They might kind of establish themselves as a dominant player. I don't think that's wrong. I think, and certainly your point on, you know, DEXs versus centralized exchanges and, and really any sort of decentralized service versus its centralized counterparts is certainly well taken. You know, I see that as a, as a burden on the space, right? That as with any new technology, it's hard for people to use and understand and conceptualize. And and there are always going to be things in the space that say that they're doing this decentralized stuff and they're really not. And part of the job of, of the people that are building decentralized networks in the space is to cut through that deception and expose the benefits of being a truly decentralized network and what that can do for you. And, you know, at some level, I think we have to believe that we're building for the consumer, right? We have to believe that we're building for the end user and doing what's in their best interest. And, you know, I believe maybe naively that if that is the case and the truly decentralized path is truly the best path for the consumer, at some point, and it may not be as quickly as we want, it will win out. And that will, you know, surface as, as, the, as the victor. And if it turns out that, and I find this wildly unlikely, that true decentralization is not the best thing for the consumer, then it won't win. And and that's okay too. But I find that very hard to believe. That's clearly why I've you know dedicated my life to, to doing this stuff is because I believe in decentralization and believe that that's what will win in the end. And it may take time. It may take a lot of arguments. It may take taking down some some giants, but uh, but I believe that we'll, we'll get there. I think we have our work cut out. Just like my, my experience in, in, in the internet and the birth of it is 
I was in high school in the, in the 90s, and Microsoft kind of had this monopoly on access points to the internet. Everyone ran Windows. Internet Explorer was the only way to really use it, even though Netscape was this company, but Microsoft basically killed them. I think what people should remember is that even though they had all this control, right, they didn't build Google or Facebook, right, or any of the yeah. really big internet companies. You know, Facebook may be the biggest cryptocurrency for the next five years, but I have my doubts that that's going to be true, you know, 10, 15 years from now. Or, or I would argue if, if it is, it will be for very good reason. It will be yeah. that they executed and did, you know, went down the path of decentralization really effectively and won on that basis. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I think you're exactly right. Like these markets trend towards the meritorious people winning. And so whether that's an incumbent that does things the right way or it's, you know, a disruptor that comes and does things the right way, those are the people that end up winning and, and we just have to, to bet on that. And of course, to your point, there's a lot of work in doing that and a lot of struggle and a lot of people will fail along the way. And so we have to be aware of that. But I believe that in the end, those those people fighting for true decentralization will win. Yeah, same here. I, I'm like the, the UX issues are just so hard. Like I don't, I can't imagine something that would make it easy for my parents to have self-custody of private keys. Yeah, like I was going to say, what, what do you think the biggest UX issues are right now? I'm working on scalability, yep. and I think, honestly, it's going to get solved like in the next few, you know, like one year at most. We're going to launch, a bunch of other projects are going to launch. The space is proto-efficient, right? The, the things we're doing to optimize, other networks can't do. So there's going to be some trade-offs between each one, and you'll find that some use cases work better on you know our network versus like the super sharded approach that like near Ethereum 2.0 are taking, and that's fine. But I think the real challenge is like how do I convince my parents to store private keys? How do I even make him understand that this is like a secret that's not like just the password, right? There's no way to reset it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that if the more money you put into it, the more like you should spend on custody, right? Like that kind of thing becomes very complicated. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think those are, in terms of raw UX, those are the biggest pieces. Cause I, you know, I look at it and I've been in the space for six or seven years. I'm a you know trained computer scientist. I, I have this background. I'm still scared handling my own private keys, yeah, right? And that's yeah. that's me. I, I I you know shudder to think of people that that don't have that experience going and doing this stuff. And and maybe I'm more scared because I really understand it. But that's kind of equally concerning, right? That some people might not be scared about this because of a, a lack of knowledge. And so I agree that the combination of just education with actually building product to solve those things feels really, really important. I spend most of my career at Qualcomm, which is like a semiconductor company, and I am terrified of using a hardware wallet. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know too much. Yeah, I know too much. Like, I would rather write it on a piece of paper and put it in, my, in like a physical wallet. That, right. to me, seems like a far more secure space to store. That's Yeah, you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> write it on a piece of paper. I, I think that's right, and I think, you know, there's always this question of, do we want to educate people on the risks of private key custody and then use that to spur a movement to go and build product to support it? Or do we kind of just want to sprint to building the product really quickly and then try and get everyone onboarded after? Uh, and both seem like viable approaches. I, I probably tend towards, let's try and solve this problem within 
the crypto space, the people that understand these issues already and solve it for them and then be able to expand out from there. But uh, certainly I've seen a lot of people take the other tack of let's educate as broadly as possible and use that then mass of educated consumers to try and encourage people to build things that, that need to exist. How do you guys feel about, I mean, I think 2017 was like this year of ICOs and the space has moved down to, I think, people are calling them IEOs. Do you guys see a huge difference between the two or is it still the same thing, just rebranded? I think the, the terminology is so tricky in this space. People use the same word to describe different things or different words to describe the same thing. So when I think ICO, I try and just generalize that term to token sale because for some people an ICO was a lot like an IEO where they were selling the token, it was immediately liquid, usually on the Ethereum blockchain, you could go and move the token around. For a lot of people, including most coinless customers, if they called it an ICO, what they really meant was kind of a pre-functional sale of tokens. They were going and selling SAFTs or some other legal agreement, and then those would turn into tokens at some point. We were talking about Filecoin, right? That's what they did. They said, we're going to run an ICO or a token sale, and no one's going to get their tokens for a while because we're still building the network. And so from that perspective, when you look at that type of token sale or ICO, the pre-functional sale, that's very different from an IEO, right? Because the those token sales were locked up for a while. You have to wait until the network gets built. An IEO happens when the token is liquid and on exchanges. And so from that perspective, we always have people, media, other people asking us, you know, ICOs and IPOs, what's the difference? And what we're always saying is most ICOs are, are not liquid, right? They're, it's more like a venture private equity round where it's illiquid and held for a while before it becomes liquid. IEOs, on the other hand, look a lot more like IPOs, right, in the traditional equities markets where it is selling onto an exchange and people are then able to freely trade the asset. And so I think what we see is that people will continue to run these private or even public facing but illiquid token sales. That's going to keep happening, whether it's a super early stage just getting started sale of a few tokens or it's a much larger public facing token sale generally solicited token sale those will keep happening and then a lot of teams will do things at the time of liquidity whether that's an ieo or an auction or something else a lot of teams will then go and do something to kind of kick their their market off but i don't think those two things come in conflict with each other necessarily and i don't think they kind of replace each other and i think we are far from seeing where these markets land on the right way to go. Yeah. And there's been, there's been a lot of experimentation over the last couple of years and, and maybe some trends are coming out, but I do not think we're settled yet on the, on the right way to structure kind of a fundraising process from earliest days to, to liquidity for a token project. Do you guys see kind of DAOs coming back in Vogue? I personally love DAOs. Just this idea is incredibly compelling to me that it feels like such a, it is such a pure crypto idea of autonomy without a human involved is really exciting. And so I think there's a lot to talk about there. In terms of a DAO as an investment vehicle into other tokens, I think that will exist. And in fact, I think it was just announced, Ryan Zer, previously Polychain, is going off and, and working on one right now. And I think those are going to happen. But to me, those are those are kind of like the prototypes for what is hopefully a future with many, many more general decentralized autonomous organizations that can interact with each other and do all sorts of different things. But, you know, taking a step back, so much of what happens in crypto comes from investment as the use case, right? Yeah. That's what we've seen just over yeah. the past few years. 
And so it feels natural to me that the first successful autonomous organizations are going to be investment-based. And from there, we'll be able to use the learnings and kind of bootstrap up more advanced or different use cases. But I, I expect that the first DAOs will be investment-based, investing into other crypto projects, because it's both kind of the easiest from, it's very, very hard to build one, but it's the easiest because it's interacting with other crypto only, and it has the most appeal to the community that already exists. I kind of felt that the true first DAOs were really like the layer ones. Hmm. Ethereum, right, on its own is just a protocol, but there's this like, you know, artificial pressure on everyone that holds the asset to like build tools and like build applications on top of it. And it's almost like there isn't like a direct vote on like this amount of resources should be spent on, on wallets, but simply owning the token and having value and like wanting to that value to increase, people start building on top of it. So to me, that seemed like a really interesting way to create value, totally different from how corporations are run. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. The Only the most major non-employee shareholders of corporations do anything to try and help the corporation. Right? Yeah. If I own a bunch of Amazon stock, that's not really cause for me to go and buy stuff on Amazon or like become an Amazon seller. Like it, it just right. doesn't trickle down to me yeah. strongly enough. But it does feel like, yeah, especially the early days of, of an individual protocol, the community can add so much value and they do it because they can see the upside and the upside's meaningful to them. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I wonder if there's a way to formalize that a little bit more. And this may not be in a totally decentralized sense, but it feels like some of the bounty programs that certain projects have run kind of approximate that where the network is willing to give away some, you know, or the this kind of sponsoring company that is initially building the network is willing to give away some number of tokens to people that are actually actively contributing to the network. And so that's maybe one kind of Dow-ish approach that we're seeing. That's kind of an, I think, an early start. So we're running our Tour de Sol, which is um, an incentivized testnet, very similar to Cosmos Game of Stakes. There were the trailblazers in the space, and we're really borrowing a lot from their model. And our program is designed to really incentivize the validators running this. And the, you know, from my perspective, the, it's kind of a boring job. It's IT work. You run a computer, you make sure the right. software keeps running, right? Maybe there's pager duty involved. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not very glorious, but reality is that like those people are like the heartbeat of the network. Without them, like there's nothing, right? So it's kind of a, it's, it's interesting, you know, we're, we're trying to make it more fun. So we have like a competition where like, people can be clever about the hardware they use or the connectivity and kind of show that their machine is faster. But still, like at the end of the day, you're doing IT work, so. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you need something to, to incentivize people yeah. there. And I think we're probably fortunate right now that the community as a whole is excited about pushing the space forward. And so even IT work can be exciting because yeah. it, you know, it's, it's part of a larger mission. But I do think there's a lot of work to be done on how to incentivize contributions, whether that's running validators or at some point, I think it's died down a little bit, but there's a lot of talk about inflation funding to encourage developers to build things, right? That a network would, and this is kind of a very DAO approach to, yeah. to it, right? The network would inflate and issue more tokens to significantly reward a developer that shipped a meaningful change to the network and got it approved. I think that's an interesting route. I don't know that anyone's really nailed that quite yet and, and gotten a massive upside from it, but it does feel like the incentives for contributors writ large, whoever that is, do need to be sorted out a little bit better because when it was really just 
Ethereum as the layer one protocol that everyone used. The whole community was concentrated around that. And so the, the incentive of just being an Ethereum contributor, maybe seeing the price go up was significant enough. But now that the field has gotten more crowded and there are choices that naturally fragments the community. And yeah. so more, I think, strict incentives probably need to come into play rather than just the general, you're supporting this project, it might do well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can see upside. Uh, have you followed like the Zcash kind of ask for a new developer fund? Yeah, yeah, I've been tracking that. I think it's really cool. Like honestly, I think again, Zuko and, and like that community are, I think are setting the standard. And I would love that in the future, like for a project like ours, that will be a possibility that like we're established enough to where the network is running that the company when it runs out of tokens, right, can come and ask like, hey, can we have a developer fund? Not only that, I would hope that multiple companies can compete for it and like multiple grants can be given. Because yeah. that the more the merrier, right? Like if we had five electric companies working on Zcash, that's better than one. That's right. Yeah. And it's been very funny to me tracking that discussion a little bit and some of the kind of minor uproar around it. People yeah. being like, how dare they ask for this? <laughs> like, well, they're asking for it. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, this is not, they're, they're not kind of swinging the hammer down and like stealing your tokens. This is a conversation that's happening very transparently and in an upfront fashion in front of all of us, including those of us that may not be deeply rooted members of the community. I think that's amazing. And, you know, hopefully everyone decides to do the right thing and, and meaningfully keep this project going and, and growing as it, as it should be. But yeah, I'm with you like, that, the inflation funding, all of these concepts really come from, I think, this core idea that unlike corporations, there's this idealized concept that if I'm a shareholder of the corporation, I'm completely aligned with that corporation. But for a variety of reasons, largely around the mechanics of how equity works as a minor public shareholder of a corporation, it doesn't really feel that way. Yeah. And these networks really can feel that way. And you know, allowing for inflation funding, putting some of my tokens into a developer fund, I could feel very incentivized to do that because I genuinely believe it will increase the overall value of my holdings. And sure, maybe I have 100 tokens today that are worth a dollar a piece, but if I'm willing to give up five of them and those tokens go up to a dollar twenty-five, I've made money. And that incentive, I hope, should play out and, and people should end up doing the right thing with these, these projects. These protocols are hard. Yeah. <laughs> the stuff that Zcash is working on is not trivial. So like you need to pay engineers to, to actually build this stuff. Again, like I think I, I mentioned this earlier, like, you know, the space is proto efficient. What I meant by that is like we're working on like computer science problems that are known to have no solution. So like anything that we do that's different from proof of work, right? Any, you know, trade-off that we make, something changes about the system that there's a trade-off. So performance-wise, our particular implementation, we don't do any sharding, which means that validators have to be beefier because they're processing more data. So the incentives around running a validator are different than, like, let's say, if Ethereum 2.0 launches and have 10,000 shards, all those machines can be very, very kind of low power. And that's a totally different kind of network. So I don't even see us even competing with Ethereum. A lot of people, like, ask us, like, are you like an Ethereum killer? I'm like, it doesn't make any sense, right? right? Like it's all open source tech and we're focusing on two different sides of the coin. It always is. And it's it's not just in, in the blockchain space that this is true, but defining competition and kind of who you're up against is such an art, right? Like we could go out and say that, you know, the nicest three Michelin star restaurant in San Francisco is competing against McDonald's because they're both serving food. Right. But 
I wouldn't really say so in any sort of meaningful sense. There's not anyone who's on a given night making a decision about which place to go to between those two spots. And so, yeah, they're both serving food. They're both restaurants. They both take my money and cook something and hand it to me. But that doesn't mean they're doing the same thing. And so I do think we have kind of bucketed, and I, I did this a, a couple minutes ago, we just say layer one protocols, right? Yeah. Like that's our, and it's like saying restaurants, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's, it is a very broad category with a lot of, yeah. of nuance inside. And when you, I think it's fine to do that because it does describe the platform or the, or the venue serves, but it does not meaningfully describe the competitive dynamics within it. And so once you get a little bit deeper and you say, okay, let's talk about layer one protocols. What are they good for? Who do they serve? What are the trade-offs on each one? That then is a, a totally different discussion than just saying, you know, layer one protocols all compete with each other. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I often think of this and like I think proof of work in itself has intrinsic value. That there's a data structure that took like a trillion joules of electricity to build. And if I think of it as a work of art, I want like a small piece of it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like somebody like built this giant artwork. And even if it does nothing else besides owning that, I kind of find that really fascinating. Do you think a hundred years from now, there's still going to be some proof of work system out there. I absolutely do. I couldn't agree more with you. I, and there's there's a number of reasons for that. One of the most interesting ones to me is the sunk cost fallacy, and it it is a fallacy. But <laughs> listen, when we humans put a lot of work into something, we don't like letting it die. And I really do believe that there is momentum behind that. Right? If I believe that the Bitcoin of 2010 was weaker than the Bitcoin of 2011, was weaker than the Bitcoin of 2012, was certainly weaker than the Bitcoin of 2019. And the reason for that is this accumulation, right? It's not just the hash rate at any given moment that gives it power, it's also all of the past hash rates that's been contributed and, and the, to your point, the work that's gone into it. And so I, I believe that our fallacious failure to appropriately evaluate sunk costs as humans actually makes a really compelling argument for something like proof of work. And then beyond that, I, I do just think there's momentum there and I think there's a real aesthetic viewpoint you know to your to your point that there are lots of things out there in the world monuments art buildings all sorts of things that are appreciated in large part because of the amount of work that went into them you look at the pyramids you look at Stonehenge like these may be the classic you know almost silly examples but it's meaningful we look at Stonehenge and we're we've got some rocks stacked on top of each other that seem to serve no purpose whatsoever. Not even a little bit, yep. no purpose. And for some reason we are attracted to them. And we say, this is interesting. And why is it interesting? Because work was done that seems almost impossible in hindsight. And I do think that a hundred years from now you look back at whatever the number is of how many jewels were contributed to the Bitcoin or any other proof of work blockchain. People are gonna look at that and say, that is incredible that the human race went ahead and contributed all these quadrillions of jewels to building this thing and this ledger and it's stuck around for 100 years so that must mean something that is like a crazy thing to think about that it's a digital thing that's permanent yeah absolutely <laughs> a purely mathematical construct that's gonna survive right like hasn't existed until now that's what's yeah. so exciting about it yeah do you think that we'll finally see like the space decoupling from bitcoin that this is like one concern that I have is like everything, like crypto winter. Do people even talk about crypto winter anymore? It just happened. It, it just happened. Like, yeah, it, yeah. Just happened. <laughs> it may still be happening. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I think uh, it, it just depends on your time scale. It, it feels like it is decoupling a little bit. I do not think we are anywhere close to them being anti-correlated or zero correlation or anything like that. 
that is Bitcoin and the rest of the space. But it does feel like it's breaking apart a little bit. And, you know, I think that is probably the result of a more consistent narrative evolving for Bitcoin and where Bitcoin's value comes from. And that's allowing it to break away from kind of crypto as a whole because it now has its own story. And I think we're going to start to see hopefully other assets do the same, where as soon as you can develop a meaningful narrative as an asset for why you exist that is separate from I'm one of the crypto things, yeah. then you can hopefully start to see a decoupling. It feels like Bitcoin's getting there a little bit. And uh, you know, I do think that each boom and bust cycle breaks it apart a little bit more. It kind of shakes it out. When things are relatively steady, there's no, absent some crazy news, there's no compelling reason for decoupling to continue in any sort of meaningful way. But when you see these big booms and busts, that kind of momentum going up and down should shake it out a little bit and, and decouple them more. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I do wonder if they have an inflation bug, though. If a network can survive on just purely fees, especially one that's store of value. It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think people forget sometimes that Bitcoin gets to its, its cap pretty quickly. It hits its floating point yeah. limit in 2140. Yeah. But it's basically in, in the next, you know, 15 years at 21 million Bitcoin, yeah. like roughly that. And so we will find out very soon. It's not, this is not a century away that we find out if Bitcoin can run on fees or not. What's interesting is that like the owners of the old Bitcoin can start producing transactions with large fees just to keep it going. Yeah. Right? No, I mean, we've, I think we've never, and this is one of the things I love about the space, we've never really seen a lot of these game theoretic dynamics right. yeah. play out before. and. We've got front row seats to seeing exactly what's going to happen when, when these, these play out. And I think it's likely that some totally unexpected things that you and I sitting here today have no way of predicting are going to emerge, as I feel like has happened over and over again in this space, whether it's different coalitions doing certain things or adversarial attacks that actually try and preserve the sanctity of the network somehow, or there's a, a million different possibilities here, and we're going to get to see it all play out in the next you know, decade or two. Yeah, I don't know what else would I be working on. <laughs> right there with yeah. you. Like, honestly, like, in, in that 2017 moment, like, when I had the idea for Solana, I couldn't really sleep for four days. Yeah. I was like, oh, man, I think I've solved this, right? And I haven't stopped really thinking about the space since. It, it uh, just, it's one of those things that just needs to exist. Yeah, yeah, totally. Cool. Well, I think we're getting close to our time limit, right? Yeah, this was super fun. Yeah, really fun conversation. Yeah, I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, same here. And it's so much more fun, by the way, to talk about like fun crypto stuff than like the business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We do do a lot of the business chatter, and so it's it's nice to nice to hear the other stuff sometimes. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any questions for our guests or want to continue this discussion, please check out our website at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. There are links to our Discord where most of our communication happens in the company. Also, you should check out our GitHub page where we post all of our code for you to check out and even help out with. GitHub.com slash Solana dash labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at Solana. Thanks for listening. See you next week.